Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, July 29th, 2014, and I'm coming to you from my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'm joined by Brett Walker, as usual, who's managing the call behind the scenes. What's not usual is that Brett is not here with me, but Tonight is joining us from the deserts of Utah, where he's in the middle of a Zen Buddhism retreat led by Sensei Diane Musho Hamilton, our favorite Zen mistress. So, Brett, you there? All is well? All is well, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry to have interrupted your samadhi, but thank you for joining us tonight and making this possible. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> cool. As always, I want to give a shout-out to Integral Life, which is the main international web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking, integrallife.com. They host this podcast, which I'm very grateful for, and uh, they have inspired it in many ways. And this is where Ken Wilber's latest work is featured, and it's well worth your time to check out Integral Life. My work can also be found on my blog, The Daily Evolver, and now on iTunes as a, as a podcast and Stitcher and um, I think a couple of other sites, but um, that's, those are the main ones. All right. If you are maybe new to integral theory or need a little bit of a touchstone as we talk about things, as I often do, I encourage you to check out couple charts on my blog, The Daily Evolver, uh, which you can get by going there and clicking the Theory tab and going into a primer on integral theory. And uh, in that section of the blog, you will see a couple charts that may help you along. You can also access these charts by going to the reminder email that you received reminding you of this call. And there's a link to these documents on that as well. Tonight, I want to actually relax a little bit and take a breather and really receive some of the feedback that I've been getting from my talks and this blog. I, I get lots of speak pipes and emails and comments from friends and so forth. And it's really just delightful and, you know, challenging. And it makes me realize, or just, you know, helps me to realize ever more deeply that what we're doing is really consciously evolving our way forward in terms of consciousness, in terms of culture, in terms of how we think about things, in terms of how we interpret this world, in terms of the conversations we have, the, literally the thoughts we have. Uh, and that this is a great privilege that we are, especially those of us in the integral world space, we're consciously evolving. I mean, that's one of the main markers of integral consciousness is that we see the fourth dimension. That is, we see that there is a time dimension. There is a history. There is a movement from the Big Bang to now. There is a movement in this moment. There's a movement forward in the world. And that we are able to witness that in a way that is new. 
and I think more productive and more uh, compassionate and includes more. And so that's really what we're doing here. And so in that spirit, I'd like to invite you to tonight, give yourself extra permission. If you have a question about integral, if you've been thinking about this, you've been reading about it, like what makes sense, what doesn't. If you are you know, hung up on something in the, that's happening in the world or how you're supposed to react or you know, what's really going on for you. I have collected a number of questions, which we'll use as the structure of the show tonight. But I'd encourage you to also pipe up, if you're so inclined. And to do so, you press 1 on your headset. And Brett will... (laughs) Oh, Lord. Brett, if you were here, you could take care of Stella. This is my little puppy, 11 months old, who is now barking for my attention. And normally, Brett takes care of her. And I don't know what we're going to do. Stella, stop. <laughs> anyway, if you have a question or, you know, as I said, anything that's sort of catching your attention or, you know, tripping you up, press one and we can talk about that tonight. All right. Oh, I know. I wanted to start with a little mini report slash review of a movie I saw this weekend that I just loved. I mean, it's really a remarkable movie. It's called Boyhood. It's by Richard Linklater, uh, a director who's you know has a, a lot of good work under his belt, including uh, Dazed and Confused, one of the great movies from I think the eighties. Uh, but this Boyhood is a whole other matter, and what it is is a movie that Linklater shot over twelve years using the same actors, and they would meet every summer for three or four weeks. And they would chart the life of this boy, whose name was Mason on the movie. His real name is Eller Coltrane. The movie starts when he enters first grade and ends when he graduates high school. And it is in some ways remarkable in its unremarkableness. It's an ordinary boy's life. I mean, he's a cutie. Uh, He has, you know, a big personality, particularly when he's a little kid. It's interesting to see because we literally see this actor over 12 years growing and changing physically. And, of course, all the actors in the movie, it's Patricia Arquette, it's Ethan Hawke, it's uh, Richard Linkletter's daughter, Lorelai Linkletter. It plays the sister. And it is a, uh, a really a, a beautiful movie. It's gotten uh, currently a 99% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's based on 156 reviews. This is the highest average score of any film receiving over 100 reviews. Same is true with Metacritic. Uh, it has 100 out of 100 based on 40 reviews, uh, signifying according to Metacritic's criteria quote, universal acclaim. And with the highest number of of reviews, it could be considered the highest scoring film ever reviewed. Peter Travers, one of my favorite critics of Rolling Stone, has already named Boyhood the best movie of the year for 2014. Uh, Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian gave it five out of five stars. Richard Roper gave it an A+. 
From an integral perspective, I think what is so remarkable about the movie is, in, in, as I said, in one sense, the ordinariness of this kid's life. He has a mom and dad who are divorced. He has step-parents. He has girlfriends. He has friends. He has passions. He has self-consciousness. It's so interesting to see this actor. You know, when he's at six, he's this sparkling little kid. By the time he's 13 and 14, he has acne and he grows his hair over his face and he has nothing to say and is very withdrawn. And this goes through maybe 15, 16. At 17, he emerges as a young man who actually does have something to say. And it's, it's almost so tender in terms of, you know, for me, myself, really literally relating to those years of my life. And there's no car chases. There's no, you know, explosions. There's no terrible tragedies. He's not particularly, I mean, I hate to say this in, in a way, but he's actually not particularly interesting as a kid. He, he's pretty normal. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any particular gift. He's a photographer. He is interested in that and, and whatever. And, 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 and the way they constructed this movie is that they met again, year after year and in real time wrote the scripts based on really how this actor, this Eller Coltrane was himself developing. And that's why I, I, I give it an integral art alert uh, because I think, first of all, as I said a minute ago, one of the markers of, of integral consciousness is that we bring this dimension of time, this dimension of development online, and that we actually are works in progress, all of us. And to see this beautiful, meticulous exploration and you know penetration and revelation of this one boy's life from age six to age 18 um, just makes me wish that <laughs> his next film is called Adulthood because, Lord, it continues. This development continues. I mean, there's so much in terms of developmental psychology. Most of it is around the development of children. And that's, of course, tremendous uh, because children develop so quickly, but adults develop too. So, you know, as I said, I hope that the next movie is adulthood. Okay, so hang on one second. I need to walk over here and turn on my monitor so I can continue to see if there are any new questions. Hang on. There we go. Good. Again, questions, comments, press one, or actually... You can send them to brett at dailyevolver.com if you want to email any questions or comments. All right, so let's go to the first. I'm going to start with one of the easy questions that I've gotten in the last couple of weeks. And this is, it's actually not an easy question at all. I say that facetiously. It's a very, very interesting and difficult question, and it's from B Peggy Babcock, who is a friend and um, listener. And, and Peggy, thank you so much for 
voicing this because this is one of the issues of, of what it is to be an integral consciousness. She writes, Hi, Jeff. I was glad to hear that you'd be talking about both Ukraine and Gaza yesterday. This is about last week's call. And I confess to a certain level of disappointment in what felt like a deliberate choice to speak about it in a detached, clinical sort of way. I know Integral has been criticized for doing that. But given the very real global angst of last week, it felt pretty pronounced. For one... I, too, have read Steven Pinker's book, and this is the book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Nature, written by Harvard, MIT professor Steven Pinker. It's been a very influential book in mainstream and also in my thinking, uh, where he demonstrates that humankind has relentlessly, century by century, become less violent leading us to our situation today where there is less violence per capita than at any, radically less than at any time in human history. And so she says, you know, she gets that, and I do too. And she continues, while I agree with his conclusion, there's no way I can turn away from the grief of war, loss, fear, and death itself. It seems to me that a truly integral approach would be to both hold the larger view and include the deep pain that people are experiencing, whether Jewish, Muslim, as parents, as Americans, etc., at whatever level of development. It would help if you could name this innate, deeply felt desire to protect ourselves, quote, or uh, parentheses, and your listeners, from emotional distress. But the way beyond our current state is not to avoid, but to go through our experience. How we are each navigating that would help all of us to gain clarity, even if it means understanding that it's all too complex for us to wrap up in one neat and tidy package. How do we, as integralists, hold the paradox of knowing many details and still not knowing what the solution should be? And then she offers a quote from one of my favorite teachers, and obviously hers, and I think many of you hold this teacher in high regard. This is Pema Chodron, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, P-E-M-A, Chodron. And Pema writes, As human beings, not only do we seek resolution, but we also feel that we deserve resolution. However, not only do we not deserve resolution, We suffer from resolution. We don't deserve resolution. We deserve something better than that. We deserve our birthright, which is the middle way, an open state of mind that can relax with paradox and ambiguity. To the degree that we've been avoiding uncertainty, we're naturally going to have withdrawal symptoms, withdrawal from always thinking that there's a problem and that someone somewhere needs to fix it. And, oh, Lordy, That is so true. I mean, it's actually one of the markers of integral consciousness and one of the markers of moving from first tier into second tier structures is that we no longer have this idea that we have the answer and that there is one way of looking at things that tidies everything up and that we do indeed need to include uncertainty and ambiguity 
And that um, this idea that there's a way that things ought to be, and because they're not the way things ought to be, we need to blame ourselves, is, you know, that that is a whole... I think back of something George Will said a couple weeks ago. He talked about America's narcissistic policy disorder. This idea that anything that happens in the world is because America did or didn't do something or said or didn't say something. And this is also, you know, true of a two-year-old or four-year-old who blames himself for mummy and daddy fighting. Or early tribes who blame themselves for a drought and have to cast a virgin into the volcano. Uh, This sort of thinking that, well, another example of this is uh, from the great psychologist Albert Ellis, who said that one of the moves forward in psychological development is moving from this idea that, which is sort of an orientation that many of us live our lives in, and that is that we look out in the world and we think, this shouldn't be happening. It's awful that it is. Think Gaza, think Ukraine, think anything where there's, you know, tragedy. This shouldn't be happening. It's awful that it is can't stand it. And somebody needs to be blamed or condemned. Let's see. Is it you? Is it me? Or it's just the way this crazy, screwed up world is. And that is a first tier kind of orientation, no matter what structure you're in. You know, uh, traditionalists think that the world's gone to hell because we've turned away from God. Modernists think the world has gone to hell because we've turned away from logic and reason. And postmodernists think the world has been driven into a ditch because we don't realize our basic oneness. And these are all have a piece of the truth. And from an integral perspective, we want to, you know, receive all of those and, and, and to, you know, integrate all of those in a new structure that, well, I look at something Pema wrote here. She says that we deserve the middle way, an open state of mind that can relax with paradox and ambiguity. And I noticed that she doesn't say, and I would add to this, a state of mind that can relax with tragedy. And that's You know, I mean, that stops me in my tracks even in real time as I say it. I mean, is it really, in what world is it okay? I mean, just to use an example of something I ran across in the internet today that just, you know, bummed me out and shocked me. That they found this little pug dog wandering through Houston, I believe, that it had chemical burns on his face and was going to lose his eye and... I think, Jesus, Lord, I mean, who would do such a thing? And, of course, you know, the, 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 we have, what, 1,200 God, people in Gaza killed, um, 50-plus percent of whom are children. 
in this latest, we have, you know, Anne Frank, we have, I mean, there's no shortage of tragedy in this world. And what is our relationship to that? Where we can both receive it and feel it and respond appropriately and at the same time realize that the only thing worse than a thousand children dying in Gaza is 2,000 children dying in Gaza. Or in World War II, you know, what, 60 million people died. I don't know how many of them were children, but it was in the many millions. And that we actually are living in a world where this trailing edge of war, though no less abject in any particular circumstance or any particular battle or any particular bomb or gun, is receding in, in the mega picture, in, in, in the longer trajectory of humanity, is not only less, but far less than it's ever been in humanity. So um, I actually think this is one of the challenges of integral thinking. And, you know, there are practices that we do uh, that, you know, one of them is actually from Pema, Chodron, Pema Chodron's tradition, Tibetan Buddhism, called Tonglin, where we literally sit in meditation and breathe in the suffering of another person. And so, you know, in terms of just here and now practice, we breathe in the suffering as, you know, a minute piece, a minute portion of the suffering of somebody who is in the war zone in Gaza. And we breathe out relief. We breathe out something that is you know, I always remember one, my one teacher, I forget, I'm forgetting her name in the moment, but she said, just breathe out a cup of hot chocolate. <laughs> you know, breathe out something that is um, comforting. And then breathe in the suffering and breathe out relief. And that this is a practice. This is a practice of loving kindness. This is a standard Buddhist practice, uh, particularly in the um, Tonglen tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And... To do that is to be doing something. I mean, there's a critique that you can hear, particularly from modernists, that say, okay, yeah, why don't you go sit and contemplate your navel while people are dying? Why don't you go sit in meditation and, you know, you do that and the rest of us will deal with this? And, you know, I think that's a pretty potent critique and, you know, I, I get it. But from an integral perspective, actually, every thought we have matters. It actually adds to the storehouse of human wisdom and human compassion. And so any time, whether you know, we're doing the dishes and we have CNN on and we see these tragedies throughout the world, whatever it may be, to stop and breathe in the suffering of the person or people involved and breathe out some version of relief is not nothing. I'm not saying that's the only thing we should do. Of course not. Uh, there are other things we can do, uh, such as, you know, vote 
or um, donate. I, my, my, my friend Maria has these dinners through some organization where she will host women from Iran. It's always women, women from Iran, women from the Middle East, and she'll host four or five or six of them in her home for dinner. This is a great contribution to the solution to this problem. One of the things we see from an integral perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, in particularly, let's just use this Israel-Gaza conflict as an example. In For most of human history, when one tribe or group was in conflict with another, they went into full-out war, one of them defeated the other. And in that defeat was a certain reorientation of the consciousness of the defeated. It was not unusual of a standard procedure in tribal times. When one tribe would conquer the other, the conquered tribe would take on the customs and the gods of the conquering tribe because, hey, we just saw this. It was proven uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the power god, the warrior god of the conquering tribe was stronger than the tribe that was conquered. And this is one of the ways that human beings can evolve. And defeat, we see this even in World War II. It's not the same kind of thing, but Japan and Germany were utterly and completely defeated in that war. And they got it. And what happened is that 10 years later, they're both reorganized into a new modern country, and 20 years later, their economies are among the biggest in the world. And they are among the most advanced countries in the world. They still are. Germany and Japan lead in many ways in terms of consciousness development. And this is something that we, again, see in human history, but, but it changed in the 60s, as, particularly as postmodern came, came in, as actually World War II ended with the atomic bomb. That was this demonstration that it was something new in human history where we realized that we actually can't fight at the extremes of our means anymore. It's just too dangerous. You know, I mean, we could see this. U.S. and Iraq, I mean, we could have, I always think of good old Ann Coulter. She said we should have bombed them back to the transistor radio and gone in and converted them to Christianity. And that's, you know, in history what we would normally do. The Israelis, I mean, Gaza would be short work if they unleashed what they had in terms of military technology and, you know, uh, firepower. But it's a new world. We can't do that anymore. The, the, the red-blue or red-amber conflicts that have gone in the, on in the past now have to integrate modernity, orange, and even more consequentially, uh, green or post-modernity, where and, and we can see it. So, you know, Israel and Gaza is having this fight and it's sort of an old-fashioned, they're sort of going for it. And the rest of the world, the America, the United Nations, John Kerry, is all about ceasefire. 
uh, stop the, the actual killing. Well, that's the, actually a, a, a marker of what's new in the world, that we have this huge global center of gravity that is in every case saying, stop fighting, talk it out. This is an amazing achievement of human history. Uh, and it is, you know, something that both sides are factoring in. As I said last week, one of the main weapons that the Palestinians have is the conscience of Israel. That they actually don't want to hurt any more people than necessary. Uh, from a, uh, a red or uh, amber traditional stage, uh, stage of development, uh, civilians are, I don't want to say expendable, they're martyrs. They're, they're rewarded. Uh, modernists don't see it. They're just casualties. And we don't like it. And we are repulsed by it. And it's a strange progress that we're seeing in the world. So, um, you know, I, I guess I'd ask very sincerely, what do you folks think about how we actually relate to this suffering in a way that's not blithe and, you know, clinical and heady, uh, but also is not given to despair in a way that's dysfunctional. Because despite the suffering of people in war zones, the real headline is that I don't know how many people we are at the world, seven plus billion people, is that 99% of us are living in peace. That's the headline. Uh, and so, you know, how do we hold both? And of course, I guess that's the answer. We hold both. So anyway, let me go to another question. I think I'll just stop there in that one. Let's hear from uh, Gary via email. And Gary writes, one of my concerns is the horrible conflict and polarization in our political system. Recent social science research search suggests that there are basic genetic factors that lead to liberal views and conservative views. He's saying liberal being integral views and conservative views. If that's really the case, what can we, what can we do to attempt to improve our political dialogue? Thanks, Gary. Terrific question. And, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this new research that shows that liberal and conservative political views are pretty much built in to our DNA. Now, that's not to say they're reduced to our DNA, and that's a difference that I think we want to emphasize in integral is that we have, um, you know, memetics as well as genetics. We have interiors and, 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 and values that really, you know, you can't reduce values to neurons. They are correlated, but one is not to be reduced to the other. And what that tells me is that I actually think it's really terrific progress that we realize this and that we, it's almost like the Enneagram 
when I realized that different people really just have different makeup, they see the world differently than I do, then all of a sudden I realized that they're actually not disagreeing with me because they want to annoy me or they want to thwart me, which is what I thought for most of my life. But as I, you know, was therapized and realized that, oh, okay, that person is wired differently than I am. And it's not about me convincing them that they're, that I'm right. It's a matter of me actually looking, and this is a little bit like what Pem is talking about, literally feeling in to how this other people this other person feels. And this is one of the great projects of integral anyway, is that from an integral perspective, we see that there are, you know, lots of ways that we can slice and dice other, you know, the worldviews of, of, you know, mass populations of people. And that people who are traditional have a, what we call an absolutistic view of the world. They see the world as a cosmic battle between good and evil. And that is a very delicious view of the world. And those of us who are evolved beyond that can still, and this is an integral practice, you know, we can still feel into what is it to see the world that way. And to think that if only my enemy were defeated, and eliminated. This is the, the, the Palestinian, the Gaza Palestinian, at least, view of Israel. That if Israel is defeated and eliminated, then our problems will be solved. And, you know, this is the view of the traditionalist. And there's some truth to that. And from an integral perspective, we want to see that, like, for instance, from a historical perspective, one of the things that really um, changes a culture is to be roundly and fully and abjectly defeated in war. And that's been historically one of the great engines of evolution. And yet, at this stage of development, we can't stomach it. We have to do something else, and this is progress. And so we see that maybe a better choice in, let's use the Israeli-Gaza conflict, is to, you know, first of all, realize there's no quick and easy solution. I mean, if anybody has one, please press one and we'll hear it. But beyond that, it's probably a matter of, uh, you know, what the old saying is that human progress proceeds funeral by funeral. That there are people who are at that traditional stage of development. They're not going to get any further. They think that their enemy needs to be feeded, defeated. The Israelis, the, the Israelis at that stage think that the Palestinians need to be fully defeated. The Palestinians think that about the Israelis. And we're going to have to be in some sort of a cold slash warm, occasionally hot war until those people are no longer really in control. And we can see that happening. We can see that with the youth uh, in the Arab world is far less political, far less religious than their parents, and they're really 
far more eager, and this is both the conservative and liberal uh, younger generation in uh, the Arab world, that they're ready to move on and to be part of the, the, the larger world. I think I mentioned before, I'm reading a book called The New Arabs that really examines this and makes that thesis, I think, uh, very, very uh, conclusively. All right. So, you know, in terms of our polarization, polarization is actually a potent thing. I think of, uh, I, I used to think this was a, a character flaw. It probably is. But, you know, I would, I would basically believe the last good argument I heard about anything. You know? So I hear the argument from the Israeli point of view, and I think, okay, you know, you guys are right. And then I hear the argument from the Palestinian point of view, and I think, okay, I get it. And so at some point, I just become post-argument, or maybe I would say trans-argument. And I would realize that there is something to be said, uh, and that actually each of these arguments are completely coherent and convincing within the worldview that they arise and I allow that to be in a way that um, doesn't have to grip on one or the other. And that's a relief. Uh, it's taken me a long time to get there. I'm not really fully there. I still really, in some ways, very much enjoy engaging these arguments from the black side or the white side or the plus side or the negative side or whatever side it might be. But I don't, they're not as gripping as they used to be. And that is, uh, I think, a really, really powerful thing. So, okay, let's go to another question. Let's hear from um, Maria. Maria? Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you good, Maria. Oh, great. You kind of answered the question I had in mind. I've always had this question about integral, and I think of Putin, for example. And I think, are there any guidelines anywhere that somebody's written about, about how do you deal with somebody who is at a very different stage than you would like them to be at and that you're at? And so, you know, the world has to deal with Putin. And yeah. what do you do? Do you do kind of the, uh, what was the, oh, God, I'm blanking on the name of it. Remember that uh psychological approach where you matched them and you got in step with them and you did the same thing at them as them. What was that called? Neurolinguistic programming, NLP. Yeah. NLP. What, do you do that? Do you active listen? You know, like, what do you do with somebody yeah. who is yeah. operating at such a different frame of reference? Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the things we're learning. Uh, the, the traditional thing would be to fight and defeat them. On that or some experiments or whatever? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this, I, I don't know of any experiments or anything that particularly show the way here. But when I think of Putin, you know, it's very much uh, a question that is being adjudicated or answered in real time. I mean, we saw the sanctions that were uh, uh, increased today uh, by the European Union and the United States on, on Putin. Uh, now, the conservatives would say that this is just 
pushing off the day when we're going to have to deal with him politically because people like this just continue until they're physically stopped. And this is true, actually, of people who are operating at full-on red. They literally have to be constrained. <laughs> um, they don't have any impulse control. Uh, they, they really do see that the world is not just a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between me and you. And, you know, I got to do whatever kicking, biting, whatever it may take for me to win. And we have people in our lives that fall into this category. Uh, now, we have a caricature of Putin as being in this category, but actually Putin has proven to be not just red, but also traditionalist. I mean, he really does deeply feel that the Russian and Eastern morality is superior to the West, and that this you know, homosexuality and this pornography and this liberalism and this consumerism of the West, he has to protect his people against this. I mean, this is actually, you know, we maybe have some admiration for this standing up and saying no to the West, who has, you know, encroached on the Soviet territory in, um, you know, dramatic ways since 1989 when the wall fell and the, you know, the Cold War was, was over. And so there's that going on with Putin. And then also he's a modernist. I mean, he really does realize that his government and his, his economy is deeply enmeshed in the economy of the West. And so, um, you know, how, how willing is he to be a pariah? How willing is the Soviet Union to be a pariah? And these are, you know, this is what we're working out in real time. And Europe's a lot more practical about this than America. America's still a little more ideological about this. Russia, or I'm sorry, uh, Europe, having gone through World War II personally, and, and you know, they, they saw it up close and personal, they're far less willing to uh, wave the saber, uh, the sword, uh, because they um, think, well, maybe actually letting Putin have some portion of the Ukraine in his sphere of influence is not as bad as making him a pariah and, and, and losing the trade and, you know, the enmeshment, economic enmeshment that we have with Russia. And I'm not so sure that's not a bad decision. But at any rate, one of the things we're seeing and this is, I think, uh, where Obama will be a historically significant president, is that America is not stepping up and taking on the fight for everybody else at this point. And there's something, I think, to be said for that, uh, even though it causes great anxiety for everyone, and it probably does indeed embolden our enemies, so to speak. The critique from the right is true, I think, Putin is probably a little more adventurous than he would be under a, a Romney administration, for instance. But I'm not so sure that that's the decisive point. Uh, there's, um, I, mean, I think this is something every parent knows. And, and we're actually, in some ways, it, it seems weird, but we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about people who are at a higher stage of development dealing with people who are at a lower stage of development. There, I said it. And so sometimes... For a parent, the best idea is to let the kids fight it out. 
Now, you don't want them to hurt each other. You want to minimize the broken bones and bloody noses, but let them at it. Because to the degree that you keep them apart, um, you just become the target. And I think that, you know, something like that is the big geopolitical move that Obama is is doing uh, with uh, Ukraine and, uh, to a lesser degree, uh, Israel and Gaza. All right, let's hear from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, are you here? Uh, actually, it's Elspeth. Elsbeth? Hey, Elsbeth. Elsbeth. Perfect. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe not exactly on the topic, but it's definitely integral. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had some experience with it, not a lot, I have to say. So, you know, it could be speaking uh, from a point of ignorance, which is uh, just understood right from the start. Um, I've read The Theory of Everything. I understood very little of it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As best yeah. I could, and I've read the. We had a little group uh, studying the integral theory practice, um, and we read that together and meditated together on it. But um, so, what are you thinking? I found that very helpful and insightful. But one of the things that we did the shadow work um, chapter, and we practiced. You know, we discussed those things, and we had our own little insights on that. But um, one of the things that I wondered about was uh, the issues of trauma, you know. And, and, you know, so the shadow work dealt with our habitual patterns, which probably arise from our traumas. But the, the idea of that sort of, for me, is what is a big block and that what I've been working with for 20 years. And, you know, I tried to just meditate it away um, and then I realized that was kind of a spiritual bypass. So I just wondered what, if there is something I'm missing or misunderstanding, uh, what are the integral teachings for releasing trauma? Yeah, good question. And um, this also has global ramifications because in some ways we're doing global shadow work as well. Um, well, anytime we want to release karma, as we would say, uh, so some sort of constriction of uh, energy or uh, thought or some dysfunctional pattern, we want to feel into it and we want to allow it to, um, you know, really be seen and to blossom in a way. I mean, this is. One of the things, I, I went through a period of uh, anxiety disorder that uh, I think would be categorized as a PTSD thing, even though there was no particular um, event that caused it. It was just sort of an existential situation that, you know, caused me great torture for four years. And my final release from it was to express it. Um, I expressed it in, uh, you know, vocally through screaming and, you know, some primal kind of stuff and, 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 um, and not contracting against it. And there's some, um, I, I think there's something to be said for that uh, from a 
integral perspective in terms of the suffering of the world, too, is that it, it's kind of like the quote from Pema where she's saying that part of our problem with suffering is that we're not really able to feel it. And when we can feel it, it there's a certain metabolic release. And it's, it's something that Ken Wilber talks about as a marker of integral consciousness is that the suffering of the world bothers you. It, it, you feel it more, but it bothers you less. And there's part of me who really doesn't want to be bothered less. I mean, I don't actually want to be bothered less by the suffering of a pug who has chemical burns or the child who's in a war zone. I, I feel like that would be, this is a little bit of, I think, what Peggy was talking about. It's like, it doesn't feel like I'm worthy. It, it, you know, I'm a worthy person if I uh, sort of am, am not completely bothered by that. Uh, and yet, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Christian, who's a theist, and he was saying that from the perspective of God, suffering is not as gnarly as it is for us. And I guess my response is, well, I certainly hope so, or hope not, because the, the physics of this universe is that we progress through conflict and through suffering. I mean, a lot of our growth is through really turning towards our suffering. This is one of the integral moves. You, you, you ask about, you know, what do we actually do with our suffering? One of the things we do at integral is we turn towards it. For all first-tier memes, we turn away from it. We try to solve it. We try to explain it away. We try to, you know, uh, use... Uh, aspirins and, you know, medicines, and even we try to meditate it away. From an integral perspective, we turn towards it, and we actually allow it to um, move through us, to incinerate us in a certain way, or to at least incinerate that part of us that thinks that ought not be happening. And, uh, you know, this is... New territory, these are new grooves that we're cutting in the cosmos. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we need to talk to each other and you know, meet with each other and work on this together. Because it's not easy to hold this kind of wisdom and compassion and wholeheartedness and courage in the face of actual suffering. And I would say one other thing about suffering that I think is developmental. And I think of something that my friend from Sri Lanka said that when she grew up there and she said, women in Sri Lanka really don't experience PMS. Uh, you never heard anybody talking about it there. And uh, I think of uh, PTSD in, in, with soldiers. If somebody came back from the Civil War or even World War I, if I think of my grandfather's generation. They came back from the horrors of war. What they had to do was, you know, farm. And uh, they had, you know, they worked basically from morning till night. They did, you know, they were working. They didn't have a lot of time. 
And they're actually those structures of uh, self-examination weren't really online then. And it's only developed, as we develop, these things really do become far more painful because we actually have the time and capacity to experience the suffering in a more complex way. So it's hard to see that this is a certain kind of progress, that we have soldiers who are you know, aware of and being treated for PTSD, where, you know, and I think back even of World War II, my parents' generation, there were a couple guys who were, quote, shell-shocked. But for the most part, they did what they needed to do, and they raised their families, and they didn't have a whole lot of time for introspection. And this is, you know, one of the paradoxes of development is this thing of it hurts worse, hurts more, but it bothers you less. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm working on it myself. I, I don't pretend to have the answers. Let's take one more um, comment from um, Mary Linda, and uh, I think we'll wrap it up. Mary Linda? Hey, Jeff. Well, my comment really goes back to Peggy and to what you really uh, so beautifully just uh, commented on, too. And and it's, you know, when we can move into integral, second tier, and even higher, uh, something kind of beautifully happens in that consciousness then becomes so expanded and it becomes more unified. And to me, that suffering, then I go back to uh, something, you know, where in that unity where we feel everything so intimately in relatedness, yeah. we just relate to it all, then we love, we just love yeah. until it hurts so much. And I think it's that love that we can, in when we can go into the higher source field, into that higher presence and that unity consciousness, that love becomes such a huge vibration that we can then move into the suffering and feel yeah. it and bring that higher vibration of love. And I think not only for ourselves, but for the entire planet. And if enough of us, enough of us collectively as a, as a you know, a weeness space around the world do this, that's, you know, that begins to heal. And I think that's what helps the paradox. Uh, yeah. It doesn't hurt as much, but we love through the suffering. Yeah. No, I think that's beautifully put, Mary Linda. And, you know, that work that we do that uh, creates the space where we're actually moving beyond our own personal identity. So I'm not identified so much with this Jeffness as I am with humanness in general. I mean, that, that's a, you know, a big leap, and we take that in stages. But I can actually work with how the suffering of anybody is my suffering. And there's always the question of how can I 
be fully happy when I know anybody or any pug on the planet is suffering? And the answer is, I can't. I can't be fully happy. I ought not be fully happy. It's not appropriate to be fully happy. I have to hold what's going on with the larger field in a greater space of maybe we would say joy, bliss. I mean, there's, there's other names for it, but it includes suffering. It's not the opposite of suffering anymore. And when we really have that online, then, you know, actions in the right-hand quadrants, if you will, I mean, what we actually do in terms of helping people becomes more clear and more um, useful. It's not just about outrage. It's about how can you know, these fucked up human beings, Jesus, when's it ever going to end? Look at this, bombing the hospital, Jesus. You know, I mean, we could do condemnation. This ought not be happening. I can't stand it. And that's just constrictive. It just creates um, more karma, actually. Instead of a consciousness that actually feels all of that and says, okay, we're actually in the larger picture winning this battle. You know, we're living better lives than ever. And there's still these trailing edges of humanity where it's as bad as it's ever been. And what can we do to actually be helpful? instead of just railing against it and feeling morally superior because, you know, we wouldn't be doing that if we were Israel or whatever, uh, is uh, progress. It's one of the things we want to work on. Okay, I see, Brett, you're telling me to take these questions too. <laughs> All right, right, will do. Um, from Joe, let's hear from you, Joe. Uh, hi. Hey, Joe, man, what do you have to tell us? Well, let's see, on... Um on your earlier comment about the liberal and conservative and um, genetic uh, DNA and inherited traits and that sort of thing, um, I've been thinking lately, uh, I, I had been taught for a long time that conservatives were ones who wanted to hold on to the status quo so that like uh, yesterday's liberals are today's conservative sort of thing, which kind of makes sense in a definition sort of way. And that would go with your comparisons with the different um, stages of development. But I think um, lately I've been considering and seeing that maybe the division is different, that conservatives will rather blame the individual for their failings. You know, so if, if someone's poor, they must have done something to deserve to be poor. And so we shouldn't be bailing them out sort of thing. Whereas yeah. the liberal would be more likely to say, you know, blame society. If someone's poor, someone did that to them to make them poor. Yeah. And in that sense, neither side is actually correct. It's right. always a combination. Yeah. You know, that people are culpable, but society yeah. is also culpable. Right. And if that's the definition that's being considered genetic, you know, I, I think anyone can develop up the stages. So no. it's not hopeless to say that someone who's red can't be amber tomorrow. But no, someone <clears throat> who is more likely to think 
culpability is one way or another. Maybe that's a little more ingrained. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And I, I actually think that, uh, first of all, you're absolutely right that this any, any idea of, of people being genetically conservative or liberal, it really doesn't impinge on people's moving up the level, levels. We have actually liberal and conservative traditionalists. We have liberal and conservative modernists. And we all know conservative liberals. You know, these are people who just are dispositionally, you know, they don't like reality television. They don't like uh, Google. They don't like the, you know, new emergence in the culture. But yet there's green is, you know, they're ecological, they're feminists, they're, you know, the global warming and, you know, all of the environmentalism. But they're just dispositionally conservative. And I think that's a distinction we want to make here. We're not necessarily talking about people being genetically traditional or genetically postmodern. We're talking about the flavor of how we do these. There are some people who are just, you know, we have, I'm one of them. I, I, we have our foot in the gas. We, we believe in evolution. We think things are getting better and we are ready for the next thing because likely it's going to be better. Uh, there are people who, and the, the first tier, you know, every stage has them, who thinks that, you know, humanity is, for one reason or the other, driven things into the ditch. And, uh, you know, postmodernists, you know, think that we're corporate dupes. And, you know, they have a whole story. Every stage has a story about how things are going to hell, and we need to stop it. And that, that's sort of the dispositional conservative at every stage. So, anyway, thanks for that. That's a very, very, very good point. Uh, let's do one more, and then we'll close it up for the night, and that is, Sam, you still here, Sam? I'm here, and I'm actually good. Uh, cool. I have no real question. I was just kind of looking for information. Oh, okay. And uh, I think I received that. I don't know uh, if we're curious about the NLP or not. Well, I'm yeah, we could. It, though, and I appreciate the yeah. information product. So, so. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we we can talk about NLP another time. It's I think we're uh, into our over our hour by a few minutes. So let's just um, actually let me end with a poem, which I think really gets to this idea of uh, are are we moving forward? Are we moving backward? And it deals with uh, one of the sort of big questions of the cosmos itself. And that is, is the cosmos winding down in terms of, is the universe is just going to expand and finally everything's going to get cold and dark and die out and the suns and stars are going to just get cold? Is that our cosmic story? Or are we going to get to a point like a rubber band where we start contracting and we have uh, another contraction and maybe another big bang? Or is it multiverses? Or how does this work? And this is, um, you know, just interesting aesthetically for sure. And this is a poem called Fire and Ice by Robert Frost. It's a short poem, and I'll actually say it twice because I'm of the David White School of Poetry. If those of you who know David White, this beautiful, wonderful Irish poet who says, you, if a poem's worth reading once, it's worth reading twice. And this is a short one, so I'll do that. It, it really helps us to grok it. 
This is Robert Frost, Fire and Ice. He writes, Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I'll go with those who favor fire. But if the world should perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Isn't that beautiful? It's something you just feel into what that actually does to our minds and bodies. And I'll read it one more time. Fire and Ice by Robert Frost. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I'll go with those who favor fire. But if the world should perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Thank you, Robert Frost. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week, uh, same time, same station. Bye-bye.